0: Hello, I'm Magdalena Ball, and I would like to begin by acknowledging that I am on the lands of the Awabakal people and pay my respect to elders past, present, and emerging. I am so delighted today to be chatting with editor and author Nicola Redhouse about her fantastic book, Unlike the Heart, which was released last year by the University of Queensland Press. Nicola, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming back to talk to me. We, we had a, uh, a panel um, not too long ago for the Newcastle Writers Festival and uh, it was it was so good and so interesting that um, I, I promised online <laughs> that I would have everybody back for a one-on-one um, because we really, I think we really just grazed the surface. Yeah. And, and, and it just felt like there was so much more to to talk about Um, and I really wanted to get into the nitty-gritty of each individual book Um, and I particularly want to get into the nitty-gritty of your book today because it's uh, it's so interesting and so um, such an unusual and and um, evocative take on I guess what was a difficult time but before we begin chatting um, can I ask you to just open the show by reading a little from the book so people can get a sense just a little bit of a sense of
1: Sure, yeah. I'm going to read a section from midway through the book, which is about um, the time that my father hypnotized me. Um, My father Aaron had once reluctantly hypnotized me. As a teenager, thrilled by the discovery that he had been trained in hypnosis at university, I'd convinced him to try it on me. I lay with the reverence of one about to be sacrificed for the higher good. On the bed, Aaron and his partner Paul kept pretty for me in my bedroom away from home. The evaporative air conditioning barely diluting the heat of that Western Australian summer. Aaron held a pencil above me, its tip hovering in the air. I was to look at the dot of its lead point as steadily as I could. He brought it down slowly. I was, he instructed me in a low, even voice, to relax, to keep my eyes on the pencil, let my lids get heavy. Hypnosis relies on the subject's willingness to participate, and my father could not have found himself a more suggestible subject. My arm levitated on his instruction, my fingers numbed when he told them to. Do you remember that? I asked him now. He laughed. You begged me, I can't believe I did it. He was ashamed of the showman connotations of hypnosis after all these years. It's not something I do in my work, he'd said every time I'd nagged him to try it on me. I remembered my arm inhabited of its own will and how it had lowered itself back to its position beside me on the bed and how my father had instructed in his somnolent base. That it would begin to go numb and how it had. When he had approached it with a sewing needle, I'd not flinched. Didn't you stick a pin in my arm? I asked him now. He looked surprised. Yes, I remember that. The pin thing was to reinforce and confirm the suggestion I'd made to you that your arm was numb. Don't forget, the method of hypnosis I was doing is based on, on an idea of accessing the unconscious mind through suggestion. Back in the 1970s, before Aaron had moved on to his eventual interest in psychoanalytic therapy, He was completing his master's in psychology and had been trained in a kind of hypnosis called Ericksonian hypnosis, which uses a technique known as paradoxical communication. Milton Erickson, after whom it was named, was a maverick prone to adopting rather offbeat strategies in his work with patients to engage what he deemed to be the patient's unconscious mind. He believed that in a deep trance, people have entered a state in which they are responding from a part of their minds that they're not aware of, an unconscious part. But his concept of the unconscious was nothing like Freud's hostile construction of self that banished unacceptable thoughts. Erickson said it was a healing force that could effectively produce change if communicated to indirectly or using metaphor, language, play and storytelling rather than authoritative command. His prediction was that the person would resist overt direction, but their unconscious mind could be influenced. I think you also told me it wouldn't bleed, I continued, eager to get to the part that interested me before our time was up. He looked perplexed. Something about it not bleeding rings a bell, but no, I would have maybe told you that it wasn't going to bleed because I wasn't putting it in very deeply. I said it to you so you wouldn't worry. I wasn't saying the hypnosis would stop it bleeding. Oh, I said. Aaron looked at me askance. Let's make some time to talk about this. I have to get back to my rooms, he said, wrestling with Noah from the high chair and holding him high so that Noah let out a joyful squeal.
0: I can't recall, did you make some time to talk about it later or is that the extent of the conversation you had with with your dad?
1: Uh, About hypnosis?
0: Yeah, and about that particular session.
1: Oh, gosh, it's still something I talk to him about. (laughs) He's getting rather sick of it. I'm still completely obsessed with hypnosis um, and what happens and understanding it, yeah. Uh, In the book, did I write about it more? Uh, No, I went on to... um, the next part of that scene is me phoning my sister to verify her experience of what had happened, which was quite different.
0: Yeah. And would you say, um, I mean, do you think, um, I, having grown up in that household, um, I imagine, and and it comes through in the book too, that um, the influences are subtle and continuous, but nevertheless, was that a point, the, the point at which your father hypnotised you, um, that, you know, you... Maybe some spark of, of fascination began. Oh
1: gosh, no! It was long before that because that hypnosis scene was in my teens. <laughs> um, but I'd become interested in my father's work from you know, I suppose as, as soon as I could comprehend what he did for his work, or even before that, when I just started to sort of um, absorb it. So uh, he was working as a psychoanalytic um, psychotherapist, um, and he and he was he had his uh, consulting rooms uh uh, adjoined to his house he was um by that stage my parents had divorced when I when I was a baby already so he wasn't I didn't live with him but um when I visited him which was almost every day after school and on weekends um when he was working I would sort of watch and sort of observe that people were coming to see him and I asked him about his work and he also um had a a radio show um, on one of the commercial radio stations in South Africa, which is where this early childhood um, part of the story, of my story, um, took place. He had a a radio show where he would um, take calls. Uh, People would call, there'd be a theme every week, and um, he would sort of answer questions in this um, uh, psychotic Mode um so some what you know one week the theme was dreams, and people would call in with their dreams um and I was just absolutely fascinated by what he did. I just spent all my you know I just wanted to know about how it worked and um then you know, when I got a bit older, started reading the books that he had on his shelves and that sort of thing
0: um and it
1: was also you know very much a part of my mother's language and way of understanding um, she had been heavily influenced by um Luria, who um, I talk about in my book um, and his work um, in understanding the brain as not localized, um, brain function as not localized, um, in her work in the health sciences, and also as I write about, you know, extensively in the book, she'd been heavily influenced by Freud and psychoanalytic thinking in her um, childhood and and teen years.
0: Mm. And interestingly you you didn't actually go into that field specifically I mean though a lot of your work pivots around um those, mm. those scientific subjects you didn't go into psychiatry psychology no
1: well I, I sort of have um had an allergic reaction to um science in the sense of I mean science science is a is a you know a method it's a it's such a broad term, but, I, but when I say an allergic reaction, I, my mind would shut down in, in in high school when it came to the sciences. I was interested in the arts. I was interested in. Um, I, I glazed over in you know physics and that sort of thing, um, and maybe it took me a long time to recognize that, that that what I was interested in in my father's and my mother's work had this had this intense crossover in science. Um, and as I sort of, I was going to say as I grew up, but I'm talking about in my adulthood, as I, as I began to sort of read more widely, I started to understand that my uh, kind of pulling away from science was a bit of an anxiety in itself that um, actually I'm so, you know, I'm just fascinated now with um, anything that has that crossover with human experience and scientific endeavour. Um, but, no, I didn't, I wasn't interested in going into that kind of work. I wanted to work with anything that involved writing,
0: mm. basically. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I, I mean, I, I'm finding this more and more. It, it really is quite interesting to see how the arts and the sciences not only can interact but need to interact. That, that You know, some of the, the, the most critical um, exegesis, if you like, or writings that I've, I've come across um, in in the past, say, 10 years, have all come from arts intersecting with science, yeah. not straight science, which and yeah. probably because of my own limitations as well. But it's, you know, really interesting to me to see how your, for example, the way you explore psychology in Unlike the Heart is quite important, yeah. as important as, for example, you know, a, a clinical study or um, yeah. how somebody within the field would study it.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think there's a, a lot to be said about um, modes of scientific communication or language. Mm-hmm. And I know there are a lot of efforts that are made, uh, continue to be made for sort of better science communication. Um, not not to say that science communication in, is inherently bad, but that there's a, there's some sort of um, acknowledgement that there's a deficit that comes into play with the language. and And, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is not about um, the language of scientific endeavor for um, the layperson so much. Well, there is that, but there's also the uh, the, pro- the tensions that arise with the sci- with scientific language within its own fields and fields that come up against each other. So, um, one of the things that I really encountered in my own research, because I was looking into these two sort of disparate but connected fields of you know psychiatry, psychology, um, medicine, um, the mind, brain, these two kind of paradigms that supposedly exist on different planes is that is the fact that a lot in a lot of instances um I want to use the word headway, but it seems wrong when I'm talking about the mind and brain, but I will. Headway. (laughs) Headway is not uh there's an impasse when it comes to language that often um different fields are talking about the same thing but using different terminology or using the same terminology, but in completely different ways. And somehow um, that is quite problematic in bringing together what could be a shared knowledge. So um, the field that I became very interested in because it directly addresses the question or questions I was asking in the book is neuropsychoanalysis, um, which is this field that was founded by Professor Mark Soames in South Africa, um, which essentially is saying, you know, psychoanalysis has studied the brain as subject and neuroscience has studied the brain as object, but uh, sorry, the mind as subject and, and neuroscience has studied the brain as object, but really we're talking about the same thing. How can we unite that knowledge? And that's what's so appealing to me about that field. And when I went to the Congress that they held in Amsterdam in 2015, it was just remarkable to see these different, um, you know, these people from these different fields uh, coming together, neuroscientists, psychoanalysts in one room, listening to each other talk in these different languages mm. and kind of not being resistant to it.
0: Yeah. I, I think making those connections is a critical, a critical thing. And, mm. um, and maybe it does take sometimes take somebody who's not in either of those fields to make that, yeah. you know, that bridge between
1: mm. them. Mm. Yes. I feel that. I mean, I'm often, uh, I'll be reading sort of, uh, well, even just recently, I mean, I'm not the first, to make any of these connections. And often when I make a connection, I'll then research and find that plenty of other people have. But just as a sort of example, um, I was reading about the neuroscientist, Michael Gazzaniga's um, work on um, what he calls the, now I've forgotten the term, but he has a term for um, the way that we sort of explain things, uh, gaps in, sort of you know how we explain uh how one thing when there's something missing an understanding of something um and then in uh other fields of neuroscience that the word confabulation is used for that so i was reading gazanaga's paper and thinking but that's that's what you know so and so talks about when they talk about confabulation then mm-hmm. i googled the two terms and someone had written a paper explaining how and why these two ideas cross over um so, yeah, it is, it is interesting as a kind of lay person to come in and, and have that overview.
0: Yes. And, 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 of course, as you do in your book, to also do that with, you know, with your own journey and your own memoir yeah. and, and to bring all that together so that, the, you know, there is, there is so much information in this book. It's, it's very much a piece of science writing in many respects, but, of course, there's also, there's also the pain and the working mm-hmm. through the pain, the actual, um, you know, postnatal depression that you you went through and did you feel i mean you began with that of course but did you feel that the work kept growing into something that was much much bigger um than your own particular story
1: yeah absolutely um it had started with uh this interest in the question of whether freud's theory of the unconscious had any validity in in the world of science Mm -hmm. uh, because my sister had posed that challenge to me um and then, it over time, you know, I realized it was attached to this story of postnatal um, anxiety, as I as I call it, that I had. Um, and as I kind of started adding the layers of of um, questions, really, onto it, that's as you know, it expanded outwards and outwards. And um, and then, of course, you know, just just the experience of postnatal anxiety um in itself then opens up so many other questions about me- mental experience um so even you know when I was trying to kind of connect so I would try and like find something in a uh, uh research in the research say about um the genetics of postnatal depression and then I would find that really there hadn't been that many papers definitively on postnatal depression but it expanded outward to depression so then it kind of referred you to those papers on depression more broadly so then the book ends up opening up because it's not just about postnatal depression it's about depression as a phenomenon um and it just yeah it just kept and there were times when it was you know unw- unwieldy and and i felt like a little bit alarmed at where it could go <laughs> um, And and right near the start when I started the more sort of theoretical question about Freud, there was a period of time where I thought I was writing a book about the authority of science. Um, But I I didn't feel that felt too big for me and I felt completely at sea. So, yeah, it it does and did expand. And I hope it does for readers too. I mean, I know uh, it's very much been... um, received as a kind of product, so to speak, crudely, as a postnatal memoir, postnatal depression memoir. Um, I don't see it as that. And I, and I kind of, I hope that it opens up, that it can be kind of, that other people might try it. You know, I see it in the library sometimes under the, um, it's in the parenting area. And I, I kind of, I think it, I think it would be of a lot of use and I've had a lot of, mothers write to me about it and i'm i'm really glad about that but I, I hope it's more as well
0: of course yes and there there are so many other strands that come through too i mean there's the whole genetic inheritance and epigenetics mm-hmm. that you know that you explore in there and and i feel in some ways and that there's almost like a a, a transcending of the negative in that you you have your own pain but also it's kind of linked almost like being part of Mishbucha, you know, it's, it's kind of linked to your mother and your grandmother. And that there's this sense that um, there's this, you know, negative as it is, there's this sense of this genetic strand that connects all of you in a way that's almost kind of beautiful as well.
1: Mm, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I felt, you know, the the ways that things have kind of I think I put it in the book, ricocheted down the family line or the threads, you know, that that became more and more obvious to me as I researched and talked to my mother and, um, and that, you know, you sort of have these, uh, these kind of senses of things in your family that are maybe not quite, they're kind of inarticulable in a way, like just a, I talk, talk about having the sense of my mother free falling that, um, that somehow she didn't, even though i i had i knew my grandmother and i and i experienced her as very loving there was something that i had sensed as being that my mother wasn't held or something mm-hmm. um within her orbit or something you know and so then talking more to my mother and and then having that kind of you know that real like crashing realization uh that yes that is a that's a sense that was really real my mother actually had um overwhelming separation anxiety as a child that her mother had had an undiagnosed postnatal psychosis that that was something real that wasn't and now that explains my feeling about that um so writing it definitely opened, like kind of helped me follow those threads through and understand them better
0: yes and also that just even that being overwhelmed by love sensation you know that sense of you know caring so intensely about your child I mean that's a I guess any mother can recognise that um, yeah. that sense of, you know, terror love, if you like. Yeah.
1: Is there any other kind when it comes to children? That's right. It yeah. should be called terror love. I terror love you. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's that, that, that kind of love where you're yelling at them because you don't want them to injure themselves. Yeah, yeah. And, okay. yeah. um, and but it.
0: also, you know, it's tied up with that whole separation anxiety. Sense. Yeah and and the sense that you now understand something you now connected in some way or understand something about your mother and yes. your grandmother that you you couldn't have before you went through this pain it's a
1: yes know. yes absolutely uh, oh i mean you know that that's that that experience of um understanding the way that a kind of healthy separation occurs between mother and baby and how and, and what that might feel like if it doesn't occur that became so clear to me not just in the writing of the book obviously in, part of what I write about in the book is my own experience in psychoanalytic psychotherapy. That That's what that experience has given me, that understanding um, of, of the implications of that separation and how it can happen. And um, I was going to quote, uh, there's a really great line from um, Jesse Greengrass's book, Sight. And I know I'm not going to get it right. I won't remember it, but it's, it's just wonderful. It's about how that sort of realization of, looking at her child and the realization that her job now was to let her child go away from her, um, safely. Um, but I, I think that, um, and, and, you know, that, that in some sense was the, the, the center of my anxiety. The moment I had a baby was suddenly realizing that I had to reckon with this really awfully difficult letting go mm-hmm. gradually. Yeah.
0: Mm. Yes, I mean, I I also feel like um the final section of the book, it's almost uh, a point, of, a kind of healing, not just for you, but you you know your parents, um it, it, almost a way of saying, look, whatever we did, you know, the mistakes we made, the pain we went through, our flaws, that this this is a kind of uh, it's it's we're healed, we can we can move beyond this, and that that healing is also passed on to the reader, that you know it is in this complexity and in these, these struggles that we have that, you know, that make mm-hmm. us who we are.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's a kind of um, uh, idea in, in psychoanalytic work that part of what you're doing is trying, is coming to terms with reality that you can't mourn until you come to terms with reality. And I think that's what I see it as um, more so than maybe even healing that healing implies in a way that you have recovered or that you, mm-hmm. that the things have gone away, but it, it, there's something about i mean we see it in in grief grief and grieving as well you know coming to terms with the reality as long as we push a reality away we can never do the grieving we need to do mm-hmm. um so i think that that the book um actually was really helpful in my family as that kind of artifact of um everyone in coming to terms with with certain things and um sort of I mean, you know, it's not everyone. Every one's story that they write is going. You know, there are things in my book that people in my family remembered differently, or um, like, you know, there's there's a moment in the book that I, you know, I, I talk early on in one of the early chapters about this really seminal memory for me of my of being um, at kindergarten and a little girl coming up to me and saying to me, um, "Your father loves me more than he loves you," um, which I then. On being collected from kindergarten by my father, he explained to me that she, that she, in fact, was a patient of his um, and that that had impacted on me a lot, and it was a memory that I never let go of maybe well not maybe definitely because I had this sort of lingering feeling in myself of questioning about my father's love because he'd left when I was a baby um and that had been so seminal for me that memory and then sort of towards the end of the book, I write about how my sister came to me towards the end of the writing of the book in a conversation and raised that same memory, but she said it was hers. She said, remember the time that that little girl came up to me and told me that she loved, that that dad loved her more than she loved me. I mean, I was absolutely floored. I couldn't believe it. But, you know, so I guess what I'm saying is this, everyone, my writing of this book is my version of things. Mm. It's not necessarily what we have to accept as reality and coming to terms with reality, but it has been that in my family and it's been very helpful.
0: Mm. Yes, and I guess even accepting that, you know there is no one truth <laughs> there's multiplicity and there's no you know, yes there is even everything that you describe is you know you are, i think you allow this in the book in the writing style as well and i think it seems to me um that that complexity is part of what you were working with that you were allowing that to to be there that you know can be that comes through <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you did mention in, uh, in your feminist writing, writers festival Q and A um, that many men struggle, struggle to uh, recognize the immense richness and complexity and crossover with science and industry and history and pretty much the whole entire existence of everything that living is bound yeah. up with. Um, are you still finding that most of your readers are female? Is that partially because the book is on the you know the uh, postnatal anxiety or d- depression shelf?
1: It's hard to judge who your readers are. If I, we're talking about, you know, who I see at writers' festivals, it's primarily women. But that's a, a um, that's a trend overall about about writers' festivals that I think we all recognise. So, so I can't say for sure. Um, I've had a lot of, you know, um, interviewees and readers who have been men very interested in it. Um, I do find that depending on how it is pitched, that skews. So I definitely find that when it is, so say I'm doing an event that it, where it's pitched as a postnatal story um, or tied up to my experience of motherhood, I find there's a there's a bigger propon- you know proponent of women there, um, whereas if if it's about um, the soma divide um, or Freud, then there's there's a few more men. <laughs> I definitely find that without a doubt. Um, yeah.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. It's been about a year now since the book has come out. Um, Have you been surprised at the reception or the way people are interpreting it or?
1: Oh gosh, I've been pleasantly surprised. It's so terribly, overwhelmingly, um, it's such a vulnerable position to be in to write a memoir, but, you know, a memoir that is, I mean, really so personal. That said, you know, there's a lot that isn't in this book, believe it or not. (laughs) um but so yeah I mean I I had 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 a lot of work published before but not you know a book and I was used to getting reviews here or there and it's always a a bracing experience um but overall I've only had an absolutely wonderful reception whether it's been from um postnatal organizations who have contacted me and who I've sort of become kind of a spokesperson for or kind of supported in, in some ways to um, the readers who do write, which is just the most wonderful thing. I can't encourage it enough uh, readers to, to make contact with writers. Cause it just is really, I mean, of all the things that you can get from this endeavor, I think that's the most wonderful and valuable. Um, you know, there, and I knew this when I wrote the book, there's, always people who inevitably have a kind of instinctive recoiling from anything to do with um, psychoanalysis. Um, There's this kind of uh, assumption of kind of navel gazing or um, a sort of, I don't know.
0: Pseudoscience? (laughs) Yes, there's there's
1: that as well. Yes, because of course, you know, there's the recoiling from Freud as well and all those um, things. But you know you can i can't help what reaction people will have to the book before they've read it i hope once they've read it that they feel a bit differently um yeah so overall it's been really wonderful mm. and mm. Y- you
0: mentioned there's a lot that you haven't said in the book i mean obviously about that particular period but are you is there something in the cards or are you are you the writing wise yeah
1: yeah i'm uh, well <laughs> yes i i have been for a while now, uh, planning a book about um, something that has become so central to what we're all experiencing now that I'm both excited and completely overwhelmed, which is um, on the topic of isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's I ha- yeah I've got a nonfiction book in the works um, that I guess springboards off my realization coming to the end of this book that um, what I was looking at was attachment and how you know and i'm I'm just fascinated with this idea of like what attachment brings us as humans um so it will be looking at um essentially what it what it is in the experience of attachment or or disconnect and isolation that um, gives us our fundamental qualities of humanity, ranging from speech acquisition language acquisition to um the effects of touch that kind of thing
0: mm-hmm. um
1: and I have a novel that I'm tentatively starting um but it's I can't even really articulate much what it's about yet. <laughs> um, yeah, so so on to the next things for sure.
0: Yeah wonderful. yeah, wonderful. Well, that that is all we have time for. But Nicola, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been wonderful talking to you.
1: Thank you, Maggie. It's always wonderful. Two wonderful conversations. Thanks.
0: Thank you.